Music. Reviews. Chat. Poems. Comedy. Writing. Interviews. ELFM. It's radio, but so much more. Hello. Hello. Hello and welcome to episode five of Vandal Factory. Wait, hold on. Uh, episode five? We- no. Yeah. Maybe four? Yeah, it's five. Oh, okay, cool. Wow. We're pros now, clearly. <laughs> I'm Henry. Hi, everybody. Hello, I'm Henry. And I'm Natalie. And, and we are Vandal Factory. And this is our Vandal Factory radio show. Thank you so much for listening. We've had a little hi- hiatus, haven't we, Annas? Yeah, we had to go for a little bit. The, the world got in the way. world got in the way. There's been quite a lot going on in... Uh, since our last show Um, so much so that actually before the show started I was having a little panic about how can we possibly cover everything there's so much to talk about and then I remembered that bullet points exist (laughs) so (laughs) I suggested this is our quick fire round of some things that have happened since the last show Henry are you ready? I am ready as always with my bullet points okay you start okay I went to see Random Hands, the ska punk band, twice. Ooh, I got a virus that wasn't COVID. I hosted a say-out slam. Russia invaded Ukraine. Our friend Emily got married. Oh, nice. Um, I became excited by local politics for the first time in a while. I uh, helped curate the York Literature Festival. Because I'm on the board for the York Literature Festival. Mm -hmm. Uh, The UK government ended all COVID restrictions. Our mate James gave me a scar CD to listen to. Oh, lovely stuff. Uh, I got COVID along with my parents and my siblings and about 20 to 30 other people that I know. I visited my grandma. Oh, I... uh... Hosted Climate Action Seacroft Community Forum here at Chapel FM. A deaf person and a queer woman of colour won Oscars. Oh, um, we had a deaf in the family. Had to be said in a Cockney accent. <laughs> I had to ease the, the blow of grief. Yes. Um, I went to see The Lion King at Bradford Alhambra Theatre. Did you? Yeah. Big wow. old spectacle. Yeah, oh, that's nice. Um, we should really talk to each other more. <laughs> no, you want to hang out? We do enough of that. <laughs> uh, I started reading a book called Period Power, which is changing my entire relationship with my body. Great. Well, I went to see a band called Benefits at the Fulford Arms in York. Did it change your entire relationship with your body? Uh, oh, I was very achy. Yeah. They played a long set. I was yeah. like, oh, come on, lads, 45 minutes. Chop, I chop. I want to go home. <laughs> did, go. Like, did 90 minutes. Oh, bloody hell. Uh, I'm on number eight now. Uh, we had International Women's Day. I think that's actually where I got COVID. Was at um, the International Women's Day community right. event, proving, if proof needs to be, that uh, COVID is patriarchal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of which, um, P&O uh, ferries sacked all their staff by a Zoom. Lovely stuff. Uh, England didn't no, win na- the Six wait, Nations. Hold up. What? You, you were being sarcastic, right? Yeah. Good. We'll get letters. <laughs> of course. I, okay. The sarcasm was, you know, apparent. Um, England didn't win the Six Nations. Boo. Now, now, you, now you're being sarcastic. <laughs> oh, I'm so sad. So sorry for that. Um, I am, generally. I want people to be happy. And finally, my mate has been selected as the Labour candidate for the local area where Chapel FM Arts Centre, where we're based, is. I, I heard he's a good guy. He's all that's right. A, that's all I'm saying. He's a good guy. Uh, yeah, and also my final one is spring arrived and the clocks have gone forward and there is potatoes chitting on my windowsill. Lovely, good old potatoes. Yeah. So welcome back and thank you for rejoining us here for this very special episode. Uh, we've got an interview with Sahima Manzo Khan and mm. an interview with Freya Winterson, um, two lovely people working in theatre and the arts. But right now... I'm going to play a little tune because on my list, I didn't say um, that I went to go see one of my favouritest, oldest bands that I have loved for many, many years called uh, Sonic Boom 6. You forgot then, didn't you? <laughs> for did. a moment. Well, no, the reason I paused was I was like, oh, we haven't asked each other how's our hope, how's our anger. How is your hope, how's your anger? It's, I'm really hopeful 
because I went to see Sonic Boom 6. Shall I Great. tell you about the gig? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, they were a little bit, you know, underprepared and a bit rough. They didn't, didn't play many gigs before COVID and they've had a few years out. Right. But I wanted to just say how utterly joyous it was in my Aww. bones. They finished with a cover of an Operation Ivy song and I just, and it was basically a best of set and I just, and I was with my mate, my mate John and I just felt like, I was just in my bones was like, I love gigs and music and skunk punk. And I was really happy. So I'm going to play a song called Blood for Oil, which is a really old song of theirs from the 2000s. And it was originally written about um, um, a a war where um, uh, global power uh, goes to war with a smaller country uh, and creates a huge number of deaths and chaos and catastrophe and refugees uh, in the name of trying to get rid of oppression, but really is just causing a whole heap of oppression uh, and is probably actually f- taking natural resources. Glad that only happened in the 2000s and doesn't happen anymore. <sighs> Shine for global domination It's Friday night so come on down The price is right It's time to sit back and enjoy the show Well it's real, yeah So try to run and run through This time we'll be liberating everything that grows Sonic Boom 6 with Blood for Oil and now it's time for Nat to provoke us. Yeah, thanks Henry. Uh, I'm going to do a little asterisk with this provocation station because I think it's, it's going to be a bit more free-flowing than uh, other ones. Cause... She wasn't pre- prepared, listeners. Yeah. She didn't I've, prepare. I've, I've been poorly. Um, so this is my end of March provocation. 
Um, you may remember, if you heard the last provocation in January, that I'm involved in a storytelling project called Suitcase Stories, which involves young people collecting stories of climate adaption from around the world. And it's now being hosted by the wonderful Chapel FM. And so I wanted to tell you about this incredible session that I had yesterday where me and a couple of young people, uh, my research assistant, had the absolute pleasure of speaking to... Um, I'm going to say it, a legend called <laughs> Damali uh, Kodakara, who is the co-host and producer of a fantastic um, podcast, which is called The Mothers of Invention. And they explore feminist solutions to the climate uh, crisis. And if you haven't heard Mothers of Invention, I cannot recommend it enough. So um it was just such a wonderful conversation with um, Damali. And one of the stories that she told us was about someone who she'd interviewed on the podcast. Um, and there's also a fantastic TED Talk you can check out. I'm going to put all these links in and give them to Henry to put in like the, um, you know, in the chat somewhere so you can find them. But th there's um, a person called Hindu Umaru Ibrahim and she uh, her tech talk is called Indigenous Knowledge Meets Science to Take on Climate Change um, and Hindu grew up as a part of a, a indigenous community by Lake Chad. Lake Chad has shrunk by 90% since the 1960s due to climate change and an increase in population and unplanned irrigation and um, this is catastrophic for millions of people um, and Hindu has done astonishing work with talking about the impact of that particularly on nomadic communities and indigenous communities um, and also she is a huge advocate for indigenous knowledge um, and an indigenous people so the uh, Tamali also told us this phenomenal fact that indigenous people make up six percent of their population and look after 80 percent of the world's biodiversity so just to take that, I did some rough maths here. I've done maths for this provocation. So that's that's why my preparation time's gone. <laughs> um, so that's like being one one person in a house of 17 people and but being responsible for maintaining 13 people's mess. And then when there's a problem with the roof or the rubbish collection, no one asks for your opinion, even though you're the one with all the, the expertise. Um, you know, particularly... For indigenous peoples, the, the knowledge goes back thousands of years. Um, and Hindu talks about uh, this knowledge of how her grandparents can, um, you know, predict weather changes by observing insects' behaviour and that they are living with the land and, and being connected to nature, which, and this is, this is not written down, this is embodied knowledge, this is told through uh well through storytelling um but it's it's held up against western um medicine and 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 held to a, a completely lower standard compared to you know lots of western um what am i looking for formal ways of of uh western narratives expectations yeah, yeah you know what i'm trying forms, to say devices um so yeah so Hindu is a global advocate for scientists working with indigenous people to combine resources and knowledge to create systems that can truly resist the impact of climate change, um, particularly for indigenous peoples. And then this got me on to thinking about my own grandma and how she would um, grow potatoes on the Anderson shelter during the Second World War. And how in my lifetime, I can remember looking forward to going and picking plums in her garden. And uh, even when she got into her 90s and she lived in a flat, she still grew tomatoes and herbs on her balcony. And I'm not saying my, my grandma isn't uh, an indigenous woman of, with, with this uh, knowledge that's passed on, you know, for thousands and thousands of people. But it is something about perhaps uh, a culture that a previous generation has known and then it's been lost and being refound again um, 
which led me then on to thinking about the food crisis and and the cost of living crisis and, and how that's affecting people in our local area. And the involvement of um, Climate Action Seacroft and the community organising that we're involved with, um, we've launched a, a little a local campaign, which is one small part of a much larger um, community response to the cost of living crisis. And we've called it Get Growing Seacroft. And this is a way of encouraging as many people as possible to, to grow their own fruit and veg. And if you are already a keen grower to grow extra and to give it to your neighbours or the local food bank um, and also to pass on your skills. So we're getting people who've never grown anything before, never considered it, um, with people who really enjoy growing fruit and veg and we're, we're passing on that knowledge and sharing it with each other. And also, so then the um, the resistance to these crises also becomes about creating human connection with each other as well as kind of breaking bread and and um and sharing food together. So just finally there is some three things on on my get growing seacroft list of things that I'd like you to do. Um firstly if if you want to do the kind of high political stuff we can go to the Right to Food campaign, which Ian Byrne is championing, um, an MP from Liverpool. Um, it just argues that everyone should be allowed to eat in the, you know, Britain being the fifth wealthiest country in the world. Crazy, crazy idea. Um, then there's the other idea of thinking about collectives and communities. So look, check out your local food bank. What do they need? Do they need fresh food? Um, and if they do, do they know what to do with that next? So looking into community pantries and kitchens and cooperatives, how can you support them? And then as an individual, you can get growing. I promise you don't need to be an expert. Um, there's no such thing as green fingers. It's a really joyful thing to do. Um, and, you know, it might make the difference between someone being hungry one day and not. So that's my provocation for March. I reckon we should just get all the golf courses and turn them into orchards. Yeah, it'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. We we gave out um, 150 new apple trees in Seacroft last week as part of a tree grafting workshop. So a few years' time, when they've all grown up, we'll have loads of apples in Seacroft. How would you like dem apples? Yeah. That's what you can say to people. And they'll say, <laughs> I like them very much, thank you. Um, we're going to move on now to our first pre-recorded interview with Freya Winterson, who is a mate of Nat's. How do you know Freya Winterson? Oh, I go way back to, I think me and Freya met when we were like 13, 14, and we went to the same youth theatre. And I really clearly remember walking down the hill with her. I say the hill as if everyone knows what the hill is. <laughs> the hill, sure. um, I, the mean, hill. I feel like every... Teenage community has a thing, whether it's a view, a lookout, the river, yeah. the pond, the hill. Yeah, we yeah. went. We were walking down the hill, and and she was like, "I want to be a theatre director," and I was like, "I want to be a theatre maker," and we both had this really great conversation, and then went, "We should work together and just be best friends forever," and then and so we did. Nice one. Um. So, um, Freya is. Well, a theatre director, and she uh -huh. she talks about in the interview about the spaces and the the types of work she makes. So, without further ado, here we go. Hi, Frey. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I am delighted. I'm very excited to be talking to you, my dear friend. Yeah, well, I haven't you. seen you for a long time. <laughs> Hello, Henry. For those that don't know, Freya, you are a theatre maker, practitioner, community artist, legend. You're one of my <laughs> oldest friends. You're who I want to be yeah. when I grow up. You, <laughs> you have worked with young people, old people, uh, people with learning difficulties, people with ADHD, people with doing drag, carnivals, like a whole range of stuff. And I adore you. When, when you say, yeah? like, that's not a question unless you want to go, and I adore you, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Freya. This is just a really complicated way of me calling up people that I love and telling them how much I love them. That's it. I'm just going, did you know how great you are? 
Frey, it seems to me that the connecting factor in all this um, multidisciplinary, multi-skill work that you do is about participation and getting people involved. Why do you come at that in the theatre sector? I'm like, a, right, we just want to get folks involved and not just, oh, I want to direct some actors on stage and get some good reviews. Yeah, I guess that is all, all of my work is interested in that, in people participating that aren't, yeah, that aren't necessarily paid to be there often. Um, I think for me, I'm interested in theatre as something that people do together rather than as something that is done to you. I guess and yeah. also that thing of like I always think of like I get what I would describe as mainstream theatre so like you say actors on a stage in a generally dark room as being like slightly separated from most of what goes on in life and I think for me theatre is like at its most exciting or interesting when it's like out in the shops or in the bus stop or in the shopping centre or just yeah just in everyday places so a lot of my stuff as I often describe it is like not in traditional theatres or if it is it's like in the cupboard or in the room upstairs yeah it's not it's sort of I kind of like stuff in the daylight rather than in dark rooms where there's just some people there but but not everyone after two years of lockdowns and not being in traditional theatre spaces very much I I don't miss it I feel the the separation so starkly now that I'm just so drawn towards anything that's going out in the community that's like with real people in real life and and yeah the the draw to go back into a studio and go back into that world isn't it's it's not a strong pull for me at the moment yeah I think it's super interesting isn't it and I think if you think about like what like mainstream theatres traditionally try to do I always my question is always like do people want that and sometimes they totally do and that's great and that's wonderful but often I don't know if they always do and that's I guess where I am interested in like what else can theatre look like or what else can it be um even though not I don't think everybody always recognizes it as theatre I think it still counts as theatre it's just that it it just looks a bit different I guess. Do you find the phrase when you're trying to get you know members of the public involved or there's some art some art is happening in a city center or like you say all these neutral spaces do you think the word theater is unhelpful sometimes is there a different way of framing it that's really interesting i was making a piece of theater in a town um a few years ago and there was a lot of people uh and comments of like people won't want to make a a theatre play here and I didn't really use the word theatre but in all the conversations I had with people I was saying oh we're making a play like do you want to join in with it mm-hmm. and I found that people were quite up for it actually or even if they were like oh you know what I've not got time but that does sound interesting um, but the other language I often use is like around stories like people sharing their stories or yeah. finding their stories because um, I think that can be a bit more universal I guess um, although sometimes people look at you like you know what planet are you from and and I think that's always kind of quite funny because you get the opportunity to have a bit more of a conversation if someone's like what you know what are you talking about I like the word show as well instead of play sometimes we're making a show yeah yeah at the chapel we've started using the phrase of sharing with young people like that you know they're not necessarily performance kids they're not ones that like naturally gravitate to theatre or getting up in front of a mic but they can share something which I think is it is loaded, like it's not ideal, but sometimes yeah. we fall on back on that. We're going to share something with you. I always think with like language around these things, you you can't get too stuck in it because as soon as you're you know you've got decided, oh that is that's it, we've we've landed on it. You always meet someone who perfectly takes it apart, and you're like, oh yeah, it doesn't work at all, does it? So I always think it's always evolving that language, isn't it? And that's kind of quite fun, I think to not get too worried about it in a way because it will probably change in a few years anyway and we'll be calling it something else. So can you tell us about a performance, a project, a piece of theatre, a play, a sharing, whatever language you want to use that you are (laughs) currently working on at the moment? Yes. Um, So at the moment in Chester, where I often work, um, because I have a company that's based there called Another Carnival, um, we are working with young people from Cheshire Western Chester, which is like the borough that Chester, the city is in, on a project called The Future's on Fire. What on earth should we do? And (laughs) at the moment we're working with 18 to 25 And what's that about, Ray? 
<laughs> it's, it's just kind of subtle, really. You know, we don't want to give too much <laughs> yeah. away. Um, it's really open at the moment. We're just sort of devising and exploring ideas in um, with lots of young people and working out what they want to say, what they don't want to say, what they're interested in. Um, what we the project started in sort of response to this idea that the climate emergency and climate justice can, is obviously really global and that can be really hard to comprehend um, for anyone I would say but I, in my experience and from some conversations with young people certainly for some young people it can be hard to conceptualize an, an issue that's that big so we started thinking about really local examples of it or or local sort of manifestations of issues around climate How, how's Chester being affected by the climate crisis well, there's some really interesting stories like that. I mean, there's some really interesting stuff. It's a city that's on the edge of the River Dee. And so there's some quite mm-hmm. horrifying maps of like where it will be flooded. There's a massive uh, industrial area um, in Ellesmere Port. And there's a lots of interesting stuff about what's allowed to be built, how close to various like industrial plants, basically, and the impacts of things like radiation or pollution. Basically, there was a university building that wasn't allowed to be built right by this um, industry thing, technical term there. Um, But there's loads of housing (laughs) right by it. There's housing in between the industry plant and where this university building was going to be. So whilst the students were deemed not to be safe, all the people in what is quite low-quality housing live with that all the time. So there's some, as always with these things, it's like really intersectional, it affects like lots of different people in lots of different ways do you find that they are responding and they're hopeful and they're you know the conversations are like well how are we going to solve this and sort this and they want to put that into artistic creative means because most of the conversations i have with adults this goes back to hope and anger the sort of core themes of the show i go i don't always feel very hopeful how are you and how do you reinforce or um, solidify your own beliefs when you go into those rehearsal rooms to work with kids that do have a, do still have that um, fierceness to them? That's such a good question. And actually, I think um, it's so easy for people to feel really hopeless in those conversations or feel like overwhelmed and like it's that classic thing of like, well, what can I do, you know, um, especially as a young person? My answer to that, so I also work with an over 60s group at the moment at a theatre they've also sort of landed a little bit on some issues around environment and climate in the work in the piece we're making and they're like the most hopeful group I've ever worked with and um and I I don't know why I laugh really because I don't know why I wouldn't expect that that's obviously my bias of like what but they but they're they're literally like aggressively hopeful in a really fun way I always try and take a bit of that sort of energy I think into other other settings what is the fuel for their hope what's the kind of where's it coming from have you got a sense of that I think there's something quite interesting about like they often they talk quite a lot there's an opening like speech in this show we're making about all of them and 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 some of the things they've been trying to do so it's sort of about how issues come round and round and I think there's a line that goes something like we tried to solve the climate issue 40 years ago and here we still are and Mm. there's you know I think they could take that in a sort of depressing way and like oh gosh you know we didn't get anywhere or maybe we didn't do enough but instead I think they their interpretation of that as my understanding is that like how inspiring is it that like that connects different generations who are still fighting that same fight it feels like that sort of really uh oh, really lovely. empowers them as in terms of their attitude to it yeah, I kind of, I'm trying to, talking about young people as well, I think we, and this isn't just young people, this is everyone, have really stuck in a loop of, we want a better future, when do we want it? Now, what would you like? More good stuff. How do you want it? Ooh, um, well, so... Uh, Hmm. And, you know, we're like, well, that's your job. That's the, you know, that's the grown-up's job. But no one can quite articulate yeah. the, the level of change that we want to see. So there's something about just going out and creating it and creating new systems in a really, like, small-scale way. Small, when I say small-scale, I don't mean, like, individual people turning off the lights or whatever. I mean no, I get looking you. I get at your you. local community. I think it's also about, like, working out what the 
the useful things might be that as artists or theatre makers that you can contribute to that and I think a lot of that is about storytelling Mm -hmm. and about making accessible really really complicated ideas that are underreported in the press and I do think there's a real role there for artists not not only that I think there's more than just that and I think it is about community building like you say and some really like practical elements about you know survival but as much as that, I think it is about storytelling, both in sort of communicating those ideas yeah. and enabling people to imagine alternatives and imagine how they can, you know, thrive or at least survive. Is there a song you would like us to end this interview on to play on East Leeds FM? Well, if you would, this is inspired by my over 60s group who described this song as proof that their generation had tried a little bit about the climate and that young people should uh, not assume that older people didn't care. And that is um, Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Um, Yay! The over 60s that I work with, I love that song and also uh, think it tells a great story about our environment and the places that we live. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. It needs paradise. Put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. That was Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell with backing vocals supplied by Natalie Quatermass. <laughs> it was nice what? that. We should do that more often. Oh, that was fun. What was? What, playing bangers? We play bangers all the time. No, are you singing along? Oh, I sing along all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I should also mention, dear listener, um, that we are also accompanied by the sound of teenagers playing rock and grunge music upstairs. Oh. So if you can hear some sound bleed, it's because we're in a lively, busy art centre. Yeah. Um, which is cool. It's is great. Really nice. I came into the chapel and like that sound of yeah teenagers playing drums and music and guitars uh, through like muffled doors. It very much felt like the sound of my youth that I enjoyed with Freya. And I really loved that conversation with Freya. It's so brilliant being able to share your dead good mates with other people. And I think a really nice insight into like you know, different generations and how it's mm. affecting different places in the world. And, uh, and and yeah, like I think it must be such a privilege for her to be able to work with young people, teenagers and older people yeah. and just see this mixture of intergenerational ideas and conversations and take a bit from them and a bit mm. from the other group and bring that to a different space is brill. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of... Uh, Teenagers playing grungy, banging music. <laughs> it's time for Nat's banger of the hour. Yes, every single song you own is a banger. It's time for Nat's banger of the hour. Bangers. 
Is it a banger? Well, this uh, month's banger of the hour is—it's uh, a very personal one, and uh, you may remember from the Christmas episode actually that Henry had bought me tickets to see Grace Petrie, and that gig was this last month gone, and I, I couldn't go to see Grace perform because um, because we had a death in the family, as I, I mentioned in a Cockney accent at the top of the show, because <laughs> that's how you talk about death, um, and. Yeah, the other reason why I've chosen this song, one of Grace's songs, is because, um, well, ever since like we, I was back at school, and I'm sure Henry will be the same. We've been saying, uh, you know, the Tories want to destroy the NHS and cuts kill and austerity kills, and um, you know, I've been to so many rallies and and campaigned and canvassed in so many different ways, and um, sometimes those politics become very personal and uh and certainly we've all seen what happens when a pandemic hits and you've got a health service that is already on its knees um so i wanted to acknowledge anyone who's um who's lost anyone uh recently or or ever as a result of our, our floundering nhs and um certainly amongst the sadness um came a lot of anger in which some in some ways I was quite relieved Henry that my anger was like oh there you are anger hello hello (laughs) old friend (laughs) come to stoke my rage my anger stoking my rage I'm not very good with poetry yeah you're a rubbish poet um but yeah that when when I I had a, a good angry few days I uh I listened to this song quite a lot so thanks, Grace. So before we play it, I just need to fact check something. Uh, yes, the Tories are destroying the NHS. That okay. is a complete and utter <laughs> fact uh, here on East Leeds FM. Uh, so this is uh, Farewell to Welfare by the, should we say legend? I think we should. Grace Petrie. to dream of a Britain where I'd be proud to bring up kids these days I'd settle for a Britain 
where I'd be allowed to bring up kids and Mrs. May, if I may be so bold as to say that your archaic view of family holds no relevance today. And if you think that honest people really should be turned away from IVF and BMBs just because they're gay, I suggest you stop requesting that we continue to pay our taxes to a party that's That was Farewell to Welfare by Grace Petrie. Thank you, Grace, for that song. I've lost count of the times I've gone to that song for comfort and anger and hope. Oh, hope and anger in equal measure. What a joyous and furious song. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So. This is another person who brings me hope and anger in equal measure. Yeah. Wow. What a fantastic poet we have coming for you, who we had the pleasure, or I had the pleasure, and you were there too. You also (laughs) had the pleasure of um, seeing live at Say Out Slam. Well, no, not the Slam, just Say Out Poetry Event. Standard standard Say Out, not Slam. Yeah, so uh, to close off the Yacht Literature Festival, we put on a showcase of fantastic performance poets and each and every one of them was brill. Uh, Mm. But our headliner, Sahima Manzo Khan, was so... um, Well, when you say anger, it doesn't... You imagine like, shaking fists, but like there's a a calm, concentrated... Articulate... Oh, um, it's really, it was quite something to be in her presence, actually, and, yeah. and just sit back and, and, and let her speak so effortlessly as mm. well. She had an effortless presence on stage um, and uh, her poetry just absolutely smashing. Yeah. So I chatted to Sahima in this interview. We mentioned it was sort of the end of January. So just to highlight that she was bringing a book out and now the book is out. So you need to get hold of Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia. So a quick intro before we play the pre-recorded interview. She is a writer, poet and activist. Uh, She's written for The Guardian, The Independent, Al Jazeera and Galdem. And her poetry has got millions of views (gasps) online. And I dare say a few more views after this interview Mm because you'll all go away and watch her stuff. Twelve more views. (laughs) How are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm I'm West Sunny. I've done my radio voice, so I've been like, "Hello," and now I'm (laughs) doing an interview. Right, it's Um, good. It pulled the energy up. (laughs) We're having this conversation at what is known as the the fag end of January, so the dying days of the first month of the year. How has 2022 been for you so far? I can't believe it's the end of January. That makes me feel really weird. Um, 2022 has been. I think it's been hard to get into. I definitely feel like I've only just sort of landed in it. Um, but I feel maybe more optimistic than in previous, you know, the previous pandemic years. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's completely misplaced optimism, but um, yeah, I just, I think that's what you, you just have to, don't you? You just have to kind of keep your hopes up, I think. So you've got a few performances coming up. I think you're doing something in Birmingham and then uh, a certain a certain individual has booked you for a, uh, a gig in York for the York Literature <laughs> Festival. Um, uh, so, listeners, that's me. I'm, I'm referring to <laughs> That wasn't clear. That um, was quite ambiguous, to be fair. To yeah, it was <laughs> very coded. So, um, have you had a chance to perform live very much? And when I say that, no. like, in an audience, and are you looking forward to these actual in-person I, Yeah, things? I was thinking about it the other day, and it's like, actually, I have not... Um... All the people, I, I almost feel quite nervous, to be honest, because I feel like I haven't stood in front of people. Like, everything is always just, like, you know, shoulders and above performances mm-hmm. on Zoom that I've probably done for yeah. the last two years. And I think this is probably the first time in the pandemic where I feel the, the places that I'm going, you know, they have all the precautions in place. But it is, yeah, I feel 
I've really missed being in the room physically with people. I'm sure everyone who's up is mm. involves that has, and I know that that's like a really common thing, but it does just, I, I feel like that's also inhibited my actual creativity. Like I feel like I haven't even written poetry since mm. prior to all of this because it just feels so, it to me, poetry has always felt like a dialogue. And I think without being able to be in the room and have the audience like, actually be able to read their faces and look into mm -hmm. their eyes and you know hear, hear people breathing and all of that um it just it's felt really yeah uh, kind of I guess a loss those conversations were always really nice afterwards as well I always enjoy poets talking to other poets once we've all got off the stage and that idea that you know is and I find it's poetry. like the most inspiring have you found yeah. that as, as a writer that the vastness of how we talk about the situation at the moment have you found ways to talk creatively about it or have you been like myself just gone I, I don't know how to process this at all yet yeah I think well it's interesting because actually for the majority of the last so like for the last two years almost I have been writing um like a fact book you know like a like a not it's not a creative book it's been a book about islamophobia analyzing mm -hmm. racism and I think doing that within this context has also just meant to be honest, you know, re like, I suppose, analyzing every moment that we're living through and everything that we're seeing from a really structural and global level. And that's not been fun and not been a way to be creative, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I think that I really do. I really actually, as soon as I finished writing the book, I was just like, wow, I actually need space to just write creatively again, write without trying to, you know, I feel like the thing about creative writing that's so freeing is that you're not trying to present an argument you're not trying to persuade anyone of like the urgency of caring about the world and in fact you probably do a better job of of persuading them to care about the world through mm. creative writing but ironically that's not the purpose and i think i actually missed that and so like you know i, I i've kind of struggled um even like in my own journaling and stuff i don't know like when i write for myself even it just all feels quite like stagnant and i i almost wonder if it's just because i'm not i feel like i'm not interacting with people i've not seen you know i just see the same like three places every day mm. and i feel like that maybe i don't know about you but i feel like that makes you feel kind of creatively stagnant um mm. yeah do you do you get that i think i've definitely written less about who i am as a person because i'm still in that I mean, we're always on a journey on that. That's a big one. But like in terms of I don't really know where I am. But so I've tended just to write about mm. 19th century radical militant revolutions in the UK. That's my oh, like yeah, just that classic stuff. <laughs> yeah, just write a couple more poems about the Luddites. That'll that'll do to tick those off. Um, how's uh, we'll talk about um, Tangled in Terror in a sec, but um, just on the creativity, you've been an associate poet Is that at Leeds Playhouse. Is that the title? Um, a poet in residence. Yeah, it's called the um, uh, writer in residence. Writer in residence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about that role? And um, yeah, and, yeah. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, to be honest, it's a sort of role. But I think you kind of, you kind of, it's, it shift. It depends who is the person. I think you make mm. it what you want. Um, which is that classic phrase, which can also be like, oh no, what does that mean? Um, but I think a big part of it, you know, the nice thing about it is for me, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time in theatres um, and particularly, I think, seeing like the workings of a theatre. So a big part of what I said I actually wanted to get from the residency was to see like how theatre is made. I, I said to them at the beginning, you know, I understand the process of sitting on my own in a room and writing. But once mm -hmm. I've sent an email, I have I don't I, you know, I don't know what that process looks like. Who reads it? Who's who's like going to potentially direct it, produce it? You know, who what are the cast and what do rehearsals look like? So a big part of it for me has actually just been learning learning um and I think that's important because I feel like I don't know about you but I feel like if you're a freelance and you're a writer you, you, there's actually very little time to learn and to like develop your craft and it feels like you're doing a lot more um you know you need to do a commission here a performance mm -hmm. there do this event do that thing and I think that I'd, I'd sort of assume you know when people ask me like what are you doing as writer in residence I'm actually like actually I'm not doing I'm trying to just like <laughs> learn and absorb mm -hmm. um and that's really nice and it's and it's just I haven't been in a space where the so everything is kind of new to me like I, I'm just sort of like I, I don't know what this process looks like I don't know what a rehearsal is I don't know how you produce a play I don't know how who does pick what plays get programmed um and just reading other people's scripts that's been really exciting um kind of seeing the different ways that theatre can look because I think maybe I don't know about you but I feel like in my head there is like the classic kind of you go to Leeds Playhouse and it's like these big plays that you might, might see you know your hamlets your Macbeths, and then 
I think it's really nice to just see like scratch performances and see like the the kind of really random and experimental things people are doing. So a large part of it is that really. And um, I think I'm also looking to forward to hosting a series of I'm calling them like more like discussions because I don't feel like I'm in a place to sort of lead any type of workshop, mm -hmm. but really just wanting to think about like how um, I think particularly like writers of color, like how we can write in a way that's not just I suppose feeling like it has to fit this moment of like there's a lot of kind of interest in EDI and everybody wants to include you know diverse voices but really thinking like okay I guess I'm stuck at the moment on this this knot of like people saying you know write the story you really want to write but at the same time you know you go to the theatre and it's often a very same type of audience who turn up and you just think well what is the story I want to write a story that I want a theatre audience to consume actually and I, I don't and I don't know. I'm a bit like stuck in that knot right now. So I think in summary, the writer residence position has, is, is raising a lot of questions for me, but it's a lot of learning. And, and it's definitely, you know, it is an honour to kind of be able to just be kind of privy to lots of conversations and, and, and writing that I wouldn't have been otherwise. So it is fun. You know, we've already said it's the, it's poetry, is this dialogue and so is theatre. And you are right. You know, you do want to write for yourself. You've got to tell, you know, your own story, wh whoever you are as a writer. But equally, there's got to be an audience that sit and listen to that. And, exactly. and, and you know, we, we are storytelling animals that gather around a fire and say, I'm going I'm going to tell you a story now. Um, and that's such a cross cultural exchange. Yeah. You know, and so I do I do sometimes hear poetry. I see a play of like, great. But why did that need to have an audience yeah. listen to it? It's tricky. It's tricky. I, I do. I definitely know what you mean. And I think sometimes I think as well with I know a lot of people, we use creativity as well to sort of um, almost in a therapeutic sense. Right. And and I think so in a sense, I, I I definitely always feel what you feel where it's like, has this been done before? But then I also land at like, I guess everyone's going to have to go through that process at some level. And it's mm. and I guess maybe it's just about, you know, how. Do, OK, sure. We all have like share some, you know, there's going to be experiences that everybody has. But how I think that's where it becomes like, I think the creative thing is like, how do you make this version of of it yours uniquely mm. rather than sort of just a standard narrative? And I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's the irony where actually the more unique and specific and personal a story is, the more people actually do resonate with it. And I think we assume it's the other way that like, I need to standardize my story, make it kind of understandable to everybody. But actually, mm -hmm. I think, as you said, as humans, we we want to hear the specifics. That's what makes us human. Uh, we mentioned it before, but um, uh, you've got a book coming out, Tangled in Terror, um, Uprooting Islamophobia. So um, uh, what made you to go, uh, you know, I'm not going to create a, another creative poetry collection. This is, or, or I'm going to go into writing a play. This is, I need to write something that's nonfiction. Although I suppose there's a question there of how much <laughs> does your poetry and your artistry inform the nonfiction? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah I mean I yeah I think the first place is yeah I don't I don't know how strict those categories are and I think for a lot I'm sure it's not just me I think there's a lot of us who you know we use poetry as a means of political resistance and I know that's what a lot of the artists that you you speak to are interested in as well and so I think actually um you know this particular series that the book is in um it's supposed to be a very like it's not an academic series of books right it's very much about how do we bring activist grassroots voices and ideas and analyses into the mainstream through, uh, you know, a, a radical press like Pluto. I don't feel that, and, and I mean, recent weeks maybe even show that, that I don't feel that like we have a very rigorous analysis of Islamophobia as a form of racism. And I think we, you know, it's often the conversation around Islamophobia is really just reduced to um, microaggressions, slurs, and, and of course, and like, and that's not to belittle people who experience those things. And I think, you know, every, you know, anything that you do experience is traumatic. However, that's really the tip of the iceberg, right? Like with that, when you're talking about those things, you're really missing, okay, what is the history that kind of creates the, the conditions where Islamophobia manifests in these ways in an everyday level? Um, and I think often when we do that as well, we're blaming like, um, you know, these imaginary like um, working class youths and jobs who are just racist and actually that who gets off the hook is like every politician and every policy that is actually deeply racist, um, you know, and, and, and global industries that profit from selling arms, selling security technologies in the name of kind of saying we're defending the world from a Muslim threat. And so I think that was, yeah, it was compelling to me to be like, okay, actually, if I have a chance to put a bit more of a rigorous analysis out there and a bit more of a historical analysis as well because I think everybody's always like oh after 9-11 people became mm -hmm. Islamophobic and actually I think going back 
into the colonial imagination and saying, well, how have Muslims been constructed and imagined for centuries and how, and, and you know, what are the similarities, what the differences now was also really important to me as a bit of a history nerd. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, yeah, it was compelling in many ways. And, and I hope, I, I feel like I gave it my best shot and, I, and whatever it is now, it's sort of done. Um, yeah. But I am definitely relieved to be done with it. I will also say that. <laughs> um, so my, my final question, Simon, thank you for joining us, uh, is... What song would you like us to play on East Leeds FM? I think um, I, I said to um, Harry at the beginning that, that uh, this is like my probably like a, a question that brings me deep anxiety, but I'm going to go with, and I think this is the kind of question I always go with if someone asks me on something like this, is Love Me, I'm a Liberal um, by Phil Ox. And I think I just think it's actually a great commentary on like reformism in general. And probably in this moment, we could replace a lot of the examples with many examples that are relevant to our... British governmental conditions. In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. <clears throat> 10 degrees to the left of center in good times. 10 degrees to the right of center, if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. Though I'd lost a father of mine But Malcolm X got what was coming He got what he asked for this time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Get it? I go to civil rights rallies And I put down the old D.A.R. D.A.R., that's the dykes of the American Revolution <laughs> I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy I hope every colored boy becomes a star But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I cheered when Humphrey was chosen My faith in the system restored And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out From the AFL-CIO bar And I love Puerto Ricans and As long as they don't move next door so love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Ah, the people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. Now I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter, don't they watch less Crane? But if you ask me to bust my children, I hope the cops take down your name So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Yes, I read New Republic and Nation I've learned to take every view You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden I feel like I'm almost a Jew But when it comes to times like Korea there's no one more red, white, and blue. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I vote for the Democratic Party. They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send all the money you ask for. But don't ask me to come on along So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Sure, once I was young and impulsive I wore every conceivable pin 
Even went to socialist meetings Learned all the old union hymns Ah, but I've grown older and wiser And that's why I'm turning you in So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal That was American revolutionary Phil Ox with Love Me, I'm a Liberal. And I do want to plug that uh, Chris TT did do an updated version on his album Nine Green Songs a few years ago of Love Me, I'm a Liberal, which is very, very funny. That's the one one I've heard. That's what I thought it was going to be. I was quite surprised. Oh, this this. This version isn't what I am This has got of. lots of references to like American 60s politics. Yeah. <laughs> quite get. But the message is clear. Indeed. Did you enjoy that chat with Saheima? Oh, what was, I did? It, yeah, I thought you did really well, Henry. Thanks, mate. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it was great. And, and I think it certainly came across... Saheima came across and, and, and what her poetry is about and what her writing is like. You can definitely get a sense of it from that interview. So go check it out, everyone. She's fantastic. Do you know what else I enjoyed, Henry? What else did you enjoy? I enjoy it when you do your own thing. This is Apollo 21. Do you read me? This is Houston. Go ahead. Houston, we have a problem. We appear to have lost all contact with Special Commander Raby. Repeat. He has become completely unresponsive. <sighs> this is Houston. Do not worry about Commander Raby. He's doing his own thing. I wrote this poem inspired by the conversations with Zahima and Freya, actually, about hope and anger, the sort of core twin themes of this show. Um, so this is very much a sort of brain splurge in the moment, rough draft that may become something or may not. Love it. Can't wait. My hope wishes they'd had more to eat before heading out. My hope is surviving off crisps and waits patiently for their spot at the Golden Ball open mic. (laughs) My anger is always on the bus late. Thumb sore from scrolling the news, seething in threadbare shoes. My anger forgot a key or code or date, barricades a heart behind bulky in-jokes. My anger chooses which cabinet minister to hate, twin devils on each shoulder called grumpy and irate. My calendar... My hope has a calendar filled and overflowing, has the coolest punk patches going and reaps all its sowing, makes the same smile in every photo, shoulder to shoulder with poets and writers and strikers and placard sharers. My hope makes the best playlists. My anger deliberately walks through puddles, looks for a glass house to live in. My anger rehearses the same arguments over and over like an awkward glitch, knows the font of the script, exits. My hope listens and rehearses too, just in case a friend needs a lift or a revolution needs planning. My hope looks up from their phone when the anger enters the pub and sometimes remembers to buy them a drink. Wow, Henry, that is some good writings you're doing there. Brain splurgings. Ah, excellent. I love it. Do you know what? Um, I was just, just, we're about to close the show and um, I was so disappointed that our last show had to be cancelled because Mm. it was International Women's Day Mm. and I was really looking forward to doing lots of stuff connected to International Women's Day. But then I've just noticed that we've had Freya, Sahima, I've mentioned uh, Tamali and Hindu and my grandma and my auntie and um, we've got Grace Petrie and Joni Mitchell and, and Layla from Sonic Boom 6. Yes, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a show full of fantastic international women. So um, I'm pleased. Go girls. Yes. You go. Uh, lovely stuff. Well, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can email vandalfactorytheatre at gmail.com. We are on the Instagrams. We are on um, Facebook and Twitter. And we post little clips of the show also on YouTube. So, yeah, show us some love, pals. Absolutely. And I also noticed that by co- complete coincidence, today's show was... was um, th- threaded through with quite a lot of guitar-y, folky political Mm. music. We try and mix it up a little bit more and don't always play to that stereotype of uh, who we are. So Henry's probably Wally cardigan-wearing liberals. Yeah, exactly, which I totally am. Um, uh, So Henry's promised me a different genre of music to close the show. 
Oh, yeah. Hold on. <laughs> oh, what's he going to do, everyone? Oh. Now we're all... I'm typing on the wrong keyboard. Oh, no. It's all going... It was all going so well. And we've gone and ruined it. Okay, so I mentioned that Sonic Boom 6 uh, ended their set with an Operation Ivy song um, and it just brought utter joy to my heart. So uh, let's just finish on that song. This is um, Sound System uh, by Operation Ivy, the band that launched a thousand ska punk scenes. to a 